MSW Media. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin, spies and mobsters, and so many traitors! Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, uh, June 29th, and this is episode number 76. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill, and with me, as always, is Andrew Torres. Oh, thanks for having me. How are you doing today, Allison? I am right now, as we speak, <laughs> feverishly typing back and forth between my friends at the FBI to find out some stuff that we're going to talk about in the third segment of today's show. I, I can't wait. I love it when we get, yeah, we get breaking news as we're about to record all the time, but uh, uh, spoiler alert when it's about everyone's favorite doofus insurrectionist, John Eastman, uh, I love it even more. Uh, but we have, you know, a full and complete show that, that includes some non-Eastman elements. Yes, we do. Oh my gosh, we have so much to talk about today. Um, first of all, before we do that, I want to I want to thank our new patrons. I want to give a big shout out to Thelonious Monk, a friar with a prior. Love it. <laughs> Mr. Me Meenage Tootin Needle Teetles, A-L-K-A-L-J-K-8, Judy Pace, Carol, and it's not incest porn. It's dot, no, dot, dot. Yeah. Thanks for not finishing that sentence. So remember, you too can get a shout out from us. And even if it's incest porn related, we'll read it by heading on over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D and pledging as little as a buck an episode. You get the ad free version of the show. You get our bonus Zoom calls, all kinds of great stuff. Yes. And um, it because it's the end of the month. We shout out our sponsors. So anyone who contributes at the $10 level and above uh, gets a shout out. So extra special. We love you. Thanks to David in Brooklyn, Dude, Greg Kreimer, January 20 Baby, Lance Buckley, Metacon 7, Mike Hudson, Legal Slut, No <laughs> Ducks Given This Month at Atomic Penguin 7 on Twitter. Yeah. And also to Charles Jones, Chris Waltrip, Jessica Outbeer, Mitchell, Patty B., Coming to the stage at 7 p.m., it's glorified Bush. <laughs> no idea what that is. And of course, <laughs> our all-time great, Chris Simpson. 
And remember that you get the recurring shout out by sponsoring us at a $10 or above level on patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. And with that in mind, let's get on with the show. Yeah, I, you and I have been um, in a state that a lot of folks have been in since uh, Friday. I, th- I think we just have to start off with the kick in the teeth that was seeing the Supreme Court adopt in its entirety the Le- Alito draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. We've been talking privately, but, uh, you know, Allison, I mean, do you, do you want to share some of your thoughts? It was a really tough weekend. Um, and I know I want to give a kind of a recognition to a lot of trauma survivors out there because mm. this kind of stuff is, 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 is definitely a re-traumatization because, you know, those of us with PTSD and, and trauma and who've been gaslit our whole lives by people before Donald Trump happened, um, we tend to take our minds into really dark places. And now those dark places are m- more possible uh, with, with what's happened. And so, you know, I just want to let everybody know uh, out there, uh, whether you've been traumatized or not, this is, this is definitely uh, traumatizing. But I, I see you, and I know it's awful, and it's okay to not be okay. And um, I really, my heart just goes out to you. I just want to give everybody a giant virtual hug because it's, it's been real tough. And I'm glad I have a very good support system. Um, and and you do too in us. You can always go to at Mueller, she wrote on Twitter. My DMs are open. I've been talking back and forth uh, with people, women and men, uh, about their stories and, and, and their feelings. And if, if you don't have anyone to talk to, you can just vent at me in my DMs. I, I love that. And we've been collecting stories. And uh, to, to check that out, just head on over. Follow us at, uh, at OpenArgs on Twitter. The other thing is, you know me, I can't help but try and focus in on what we can do, right? Individually, what pressure we can bring on the Biden administration, on Democrats in office. So um, let's start with a thing that we are doing, uh, which is in two days, this Friday evening, we are organizing uh, along with our friends. This is modeling what we did on our live stream to save the Senate uh, in uh, January of, of 2017. And um, and it's a fundraiser for the Opening Arguments Foundation. That's a California nonprofit, 501c3 pending. Every dollar we raise is going to go to Boots on the Ground. That is grassroots organization that actually help low-income women and those who are pregnant get to safe states, get medical abortions, get access to medical reproductive care. Yes, and something else you can do uh, for the midterms on a larger scale um, is that on August 22nd, we are going to be having a live show with myself, the hosts of the How We Win podcast, and the hosts of Midas Touch, mm. along with special guests like Kathy Griffin. And we're going to be doing that live at the Largo in Los Angeles on August 22nd. So I hope everyone can make it out to that. We'll also try to figure out how we can do it. Um, you can get virtual tickets uh, and watch the stream. I'm going to see if I can figure that out. It's all just, we're throwing it together now. Yeah. Um, but check out the How We Win Fund because that's where that's where the uh, my favorite data people crunch the numbers and find out where our dollars in the midterms will have the most bang for their buck, and a hundred percent of those proceeds go to the races that need it the most. So we really appreciate you and and Andrew. I'm glad that you're doing this uh, on Friday. And uh, as the decision was being handed down, 
President Biden summarized it this way. He said, quote, it was three justices named by one president, Donald Trump, who were the core of today's decision to upend the scales of justice and eliminate a fundamental right for women in this country. Make no mistake, the decision is the culmination of a deliberate effort over decades to upset the balance of our law. It's a realization of an extreme ideology and a tragic error by the Supreme Court. This is a sad day for the country, but it doesn't mean the fight is over. Let me be very clear and unambiguous. The only way we can secure a woman's right to choose and the balance that existed is for Congress to restore the protections of Roe v. Wade as federal law. No executive action from the president can do that. It's very important to understand. And if Congress, as it appears, lacks the votes to do that now, voters need to make their voices heard. This fall, we must elect more senators and representatives who will codify a woman's right to choose into federal law once again, uh, elect more state leaders to protect this right at the local level. And as I said, a lot of people are saying that this is a distraction from the coup. I keep saying, no, it's it's part of it. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100 percent. So let's talk first about codifying Roe v. Wade at the federal level. The bill that's still pending, S-4132 appears to have the support of at least 49 Democrats. Even Bob Casey Jr. from Pennsylvania, who identifies as pro-life and who has previously voted against this exact same bill five times, right? Uh, it's erroneously called the Women's Health Protection Act of 2022. Obviously, we want to give voice to trans men, non-binary, anyone with a uterus that the Supreme Court has now placed in its crosshairs. Here's what S-4132 does. It says, a healthcare provider has a statutory right to provide abortion services, and a patient has a corresponding right to receive such services without any of the following limitations or requirements, and that will then supersede any state efforts to put those limitations or requirements. Um, and, and then the text lists 11 different things states can't require, followed by a catch-all provision designed to prevent pro-lifers from being sneaky. You can't require unnecessary medical provisions or tests, extra visits, bullshit level 1 billion NICU requirements, all the stuff they've come up with over the years, right? Three foot hallways, whatever. Yep. And no state can prohibit abortion at any point in time prior to fetal viability. This seems pretty comprehensive. And you mentioned that it has the support of every Democrat except Joe Manchin. And here's what that means. Six weeks ago, after the Dobbs opinion was leaked, the Democrats tried to bring S4132 up for a vote. It got filibustered, 51 to 49, with Manchin joining all the Republicans. So we don't know if he supports it on the merits, and we don't know if he's going to change his mind on the filibuster, but I really, I seriously would not hold my breath. Yeah, right. So, okay, if that's out until post-midterms, that leaves executive orders. And Biden issued two of them in light of Dobbs. The first is protecting the right to seek medical care. This dovetails with a statement by Attorney General Merrick Garland that women and pregnant people must remain free to travel safely to another state to seek the medical care that they need. The legal basis in that is that a person has a right to travel between states for whatever reason they want. It's no one else's business, especially the government's. So if a woman lives in a state that restricts abortion, the Supreme Court's decision does not prevent her, does not prevent any pregnant person from traveling from their home to a state that allows it. That is the text of this executive order, it says that if any state or local official tries to interfere with women exercising this basic right, and again, it says women, we are expanding our language, the Biden administration will fight that, quote, deeply un-American attack, end of quote. And Missouri tried to do that. So this is 
I think, an important and functional executive order. Yes. And the second executive order, Andrew, is protecting access to medication. And I was on a a strategy call with the White House today about these two items. Um, The president directed the Secretary of Health and Human Services to protect women's access to critical medications for reproductive health care that are approved by the FDA, right? And the president has, he can do Mm -hmm. stuff with the FDA, including essential preventive health care like contraception and medication abortion. More than 20 years ago, the FDA approved mifepristone, which is to say a safe and early pregnancy terminating drug. And it's also commonly used to treat miscarriages. The American Medical Association and the ACOGYN, that's the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, wrote to President Biden and Harris, Vice President Harris, asking the federal government to protect access to this care. In the face of threats from state officials saying they will try to ban or severely restrict access to medication for reproductive health care, Biden directed the Secretary of Health and Human Services to identify all ways to ensure that mifepristone is as widely accessible as possible in light of the FDA's determination that the drug is safe and effective, including when prescribed through telehealth and sent by mail. Yeah. So, again, uh, does this undo how terrible and oppressive Dobbs is? No, no. But if you are asking, do we have an ally in the White House that within hours acted in the range of authority available to the executive? The answer is yes. And um, and, and I'm I'm pleased to see that the administration uh, took action. And, and I, I want to give a second to a lot of kind of one weird trickism that is going around, particularly in left wing circles. Um, I want to plug OA argument uh, opening arguments, episode 598 from a month ago. Native reservations are not a shortcut. Stop saying it. It is insensitive to indigenous peoples. Uh, it's it's also not legally plausible. Um, I, I, there's, there's a second proposal that I have seen uh, regarding, say, telehealth at federal enclaves like uh, national parks and the like. I, I, I've not yet had an opportunity to evaluate those full uh, proposals yet. And I guess I kind of feel two contradictory things, right? So the, the first is, I agree. We should be thinking outside the box. We should be doing everything we possibly can uh, to to try and 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 mitigate the damage that that Dobbs is doing. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I, I'm skeptical, and you should be skeptical. That I, look, Dobbs is. Uh, you know, Allison, you quoted the president saying this: the result of. 50 years of organizing by the right wing and the idea that we can counteract that in a week and a half, that's not going to happen. This is going to require us to work as hard to bring it back as the right wing did to get to where they are. Yes, um, I am kind of interested, just based on what I did for over a decade, of the possibility of using military treatment facilities and veterans affairs facilities to potentially do this. It, it, and that and that's the same. I believe the same law professor that has talked about public parks has also talked about using uh, VA hospitals. And I, I haven't had a look at it. I think we should try and run those to ground. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only thing is, is that VA hospitals don't even have um <laughs> maternity wards. Those have all been outsourced to to private hospitals as paid for by the VA. So if you're a veteran and you get pregnant, you can't have your baby at the VA. There's no, they don't have the facilities. Um, it wasn't until like probably 10 years ago, I could even get a mammogram there. So it, it, it would be, there would be a lot of uh, logistics involved in that because the facilities simply don't exist at this time. So no easy answers. No easy answers. Yeah. 
All right. What do you want to do? You want to do uh, search warrants or comings and goings next? Oh, let's do search warrants. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we just learned, again, we record on Monday, and this show comes out on Wednesday. So two days ago for you, we learned that John- (laughs) Five minutes ago for us. (laughs) John Eastman. In fact, we're still, I am, as we're, you know, speaking, um, trying to get answers on this, but John Eastman was served, a search warrant was executed upon his person, uh, um, and he was forced to give over his iPhone- and unlock it using his biometrics while they were there. And then they handed him a receipt for his stuff and showed him the search warrant. Of course, he argues that he he didn't see the search warrant until after this whole thing went down. But he was at a restaurant. This happened, I think, in Albuquerque. And um, we could talk a little bit, if you want, Andrew, about the instructions here. Because the, well, let, let me kick this off with the arguments. What the, This is a filing... <laughs> We learned about this in a, f- a motion to get his shit back. That's <laughs> that's how we learned about this. And what's really interesting, and what Andrew and I have been going back and forth on, and what I've been speaking to uh, my uh, friends in the FBI about, is that this seems to have come from the Office of the Inspector General for the Department of Justice. But let me go over, and that's important because of what his arguments are. So he first, he says that the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General doesn't have jurisdiction over him. And that's true. Uh, but that, you know, we'll talk about that. Uh, second, it's a violation of his Fourth Amendment rights, whatever. Third, that the warrant was overbroad. Um, fourth, the, the warrant doesn't mention what crime he committed and put a pin in that. Uh, fifth, they didn't show him the warrant until after they got his device. And they say that's a separate Fourth Amendment violation. It's not. Sixth, he said it violates his First and Fifth Amendment rights, including his right against self-incrimination. Seventh, he says the stuff in it is privileged. Uh, So there's only seven arguments. Pardon me. I'm surprised he didn't bring up his Miranda (laughs) rights, which he probably would have a hard time convincing any Supreme Court these days that he deserves them. But he concludes saying for the foregoing reasons, we want to... we want the OIG to return my property, both the cell phone and all information in it, as well as to destroy all copies of information that has already been retrieved or copied from the device. We further request that any access to the cell phone and its information be stayed until he has a full and fair opportunity to assert and protect his constitutional rights and the privileged communications of his numerous clients. Um, so let's talk about, do you want to tackle these one at a time or do you just want to talk about the big gorilla in the room which is about jurisdiction yeah let's so let me kind of briefly summarize all the rest of the arguments as the kinds of things that uh those who were the subject of search warrants allege all the time uh that virtually never have any uh chance of success in terms of uh being able to suppress evidence and the specific language of this search warrant which is going to dovetail with the jurisdictional requirement, uh, is is going to anticipate and respond to arguments like, hey, man, I've got, you know, attorney-client privilege stuff on my phones. Yes, the, the magistrate signing off on this search warrant was aware of that. Uh, and so none of those arguments, in my view, carry a whole lot of weight. Uh, but the one that caused both of us to to stop and wonder is, wait a minute, why is this the Office of Inspector General that has issued 
uh, this search warrant. Yes. And let me just remind everyone, and I've been reminding everyone of this since January 25th of 2021. It's been a while. But let me pull this up because this was the launch of the OIG investigation that I think this pertains to. Um, and so I have it right here do, 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 in my favorites photos because that's how much of a nerd I am. <laughs> it says for immediate release, for immediate release, January 25th, 2021. So less than three weeks after the, after the attack on the Capitol. DOJ OIG announces initiation of investigation. DOJ Office Inspector General is initiating investigation into whether any former or current DOJ official engaged in an improper attempt to have the Department of Justice seek to alter the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. The investigation will encompass all relevant allegations that may arise that are within the scope of the OIG's jurisdiction. OIG has jurisdiction to investigate allegations concerning conduct of former and current DOJ employees. The OIG's jurisdiction does not extend to allegations against other government officials. And that's the important part that you and I have been kind of talking about in the minutes leading up to this record, because what this says to me, Andrew, and what you pointed out um, so, I think, accurately, is that this means Eastman is not the target of this investigation. Because first, you confirmed that this was definitely an OIG investigation. Yeah, the way in which we know is that, uh, and we can give the link in the show notes, but this document uh, contains, uh, attached as an exhibit, the, the search warrant, and the very, the second to the last page uh, is the receipt that you get when the government takes your stuff. So it says one Apple iPhone 12 Pro, and it's got the, <laughs> it's got the uh, serial number and the, uh, card i don't know maybe hackers could uh could <laughs> do some damage with that uh so we will not irresponsibly read that on the on the on the show uh but uh it says yeah john eastman we got one apple iphone belongs to you we've searched we've seized it because of the search warrant and uh that was issued by u.s department of justice office of the inspector general so yeah this is an oig subpoena and then um, you know, as you know, uh, the, the OIG is a, uh, a separately created division of the Department of Justice. Uh, it is governed uh, by 5 U.S.C. Appendix 3. Uh, and then in Section 80, that governs its abilities to issue subpoenas. And Eastman has said uh, correctly Right. In carrying out the duties and responsibilities specified in this act, the IG of the DOJ may investigate allegations of criminal wrongdoing or administrative misconduct by a person who is the head of any agency or component of the Department of Justice. Well, that that is absolutely not John Eastman. Right. Mm. Yeah, no. And, and what's interesting is I found a couple of posts on uh, Twitter about this by Michael Bromwich, who is the former Department of Justice Inspector General, who was answering a question by our friend Marcy Wheeler, what possible jurisdiction would DOJIG have over John Eastman? And, and Bromwich says, jurisdiction conferred by the authority to investigate crimes committed by DOJ personnel and search for evidence related to those crimes. And so she says jurisdiction, perhaps, but authority to obtain a warrant against a non-DOJ employee? And Bromwich says, yes, absolutely. It's no different than if there's an, is evidence of crimes committed by a DOJ employee located at a friend's house. 
You need probable cause of a crime and probable cause that evidence exists at that location here inside of his phone. Meaning, yeah. <laughs> meaning Eastman's not the target. Yeah. And, and this is going to have to be confirmed by the government, right? So a couple of things to note here. Number one, as we flagged from the very beginning, it was kind of weird that in his civil lawsuit in California to try and invalidate the search warrant from the January 6th committee, that John Eastman hired Burnham and Gorakov, right? Charles Burnham of Burnham, Burnham and Gorakov, a Washington, D.C. white-collar criminal defense firm, not a firm that's ever been involved in civil litigation. And by the way, you and I collectively had a lot of fun at what an unbelievable hash they made <laughs> of trying to participate in that civil litigation process. Right? <laughs> it was really fun. It was a good time. I, it was because that's, right, I would do a terrible job defending a, you know, DUI defendant. Right? Like, it's not my area. It's not my stuff. He's sucked at it. Why would you hire Charles Burnham as your go-to lawyer? Because you are worried that you are going to serve time. For the exact same reason that you send an email to Rudy Giuliani that's like, uh, hey, if there's still one of those pardon lists floating around, I'd like to be on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I want to also talk a little bit about, because with regards to that DOJ IG investigation I talked about that opened up on January 25th, Later that year, October, November, the time frame that Merrick Garland testified before the, I believe, the Senate Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. um, he, he was asked what's going on with the uh, OIG investigation. And all he would say is that it's ongoing. And when there are recommendations, I will follow them. And he swore under oath that he would. Um, something that's come up from um, some of my friends, former FBI um, people in high, high places at the FBI, have said it's possible that DOJ and um, FBI and IG are working on this together. Um, but it is odd. Uh, they, they all say it is very odd that, that this is uh, clearly, definitely an IG case and that IG doesn't really do criminal cases, but it could be a, a joint thing with the, with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office team that's handling the criminal side. But it is odd, they say. So as a result of that, right, so you've got Charles Burnham now, criminal lawyer, has correctly stated as the first basis for, hey, return this piece of property to me. The my guy can't possibly be a target of your investigation. The only possible response that the DOJ can give, they could say, whoops, we didn't know. But I, I, again, these subpoenas are directly supervised by the attorney general, right? Like that's how this has to go forward. So Merrick Garland personally signed off on issuing the subpoena. I don't think there was a whoopsie doodle moment, right? So this means that the government will have to put in writing, hey, we get this. Your guy is not the target, you know, and maybe it will say redacted is and we'll be trying to figure out whose name is under that uh, redacted tape. But as far as I can tell, right, given the jurisdiction of the OIG, as far as I can tell, we've got two potential options, both of whom were front and center uh, in last Thursday's hearing before the one six committee. One is associate attorney general and uh, for, I guess, a couple of seconds acting attorney general within the uh, Trump White House, Jeff Clark. And the know. other 
<laughs> is uh, is the guy who directly connects the uh, Jeffrey Clark letters with the Eastman memo, which I was screaming in September. Is no one there has to be a connection here? Is no one looking at these two things? They have the same language. A guy named what is it? Klukowski. Yeah, Ken Klukowski uh, is the other the other DOJ folk. And I, you know, let's let's give a third aspect here, which is. Uh, I do not believe there is any case law on this point as to whether the president or former president qualifies as the, quote, head of any agency. But the president is the head of every executive agency. And uh, until now, there has been absolutely nothing, right? None of the documents that we have seen from Eastman connect up with Jeff Clark this is an, this is an interesting interesting development for precisely that reason right this this brings together all of the wings of the conspiracy yeah and and with regards to the president um uh, i just heard back uh, andrew cuz i know you and i were wondering this same thing but i just heard back from a, a former fbi counterintelligence friend of mine that the department of of justice office of inspector general does not the president is not within their jurisdiction mm, okay uh, but again i think you're also right that it's not settled case law but they can't be because they're the top cop right uh, and there is really no office of inspector general that covers the president so it's the other branches of government i guess I, he didn't say that i'm just guessing um but apparently he's not in that uh, chain of command subject to Office of Inspector General, Department of Justice investigations. I, I guess much like he's not, you can't investigate him for the Hatch Act. Well, and I would think that as a sitting president, that would make sense. And in any event, you know, you would be bound by, despite the fact that they're, you know, sternly worded crunch wraps, you would be bound by the OLC opinion letters regarding a sitting president. Um, how that applies when you were talking about a former president for acts committed as the president, again, just gets us into civ pro geekery that, you know, <laughs> I, I wish we didn't have to have an insurrection to raise these kinds of cases. Uh, but mm. uh, but yeah, no, I it, it, it I'm, I'm glad we were able to run that to ground Um Using the OIG here seems to me that the only reason you would want to do that is bringing in additional resources, right? Yeah, either bringing in additional resources or keeping the decision out of your hands, a sort of due process kind of a situation. So whereas so Merrick Garland can say, hey, I didn't ask for this. My OIG told me. My independent investigative guy, Michael Horitz, said this needs to, you know, this is going down. And then I said, go work with the U.S. attorney in D.C., Matt Graves, whatever. Keeps it in an arm's length, keeps politics a little bit out uh, of the DOJ, which is which is good. And I'm all for and I'm all for due process because all of these things could be subjects of appeals if yeah. indictments come down. Right? Donald Trump will have. I mean, admittedly, they will be only people dumb enough to work for Donald Trump, uh, but he will have an inexhaustible supply of moronic lawyers ready to work for him uh, to try and find and raise every possible argument. Um, so, yeah, you want you want your eyes to be dotted, your T's to be crossed. I agree with that. So the search warrant, right, describes with particularity the persons to be searched here, John Eastman, and the things, the particular things to be seized. 
And I want to read the beginning of this because it, it, I think, gives rise to a lot of the answers to Eastman's arguments and also gives us a little more insight as to what's going on. So in describing the attachment is now attachment B1. This is page 16 of the document uh, of what's going to be seized. It begins the way a normal search warrant begins, right? Any electronic or digital devices, including cell phones, USB devices, iPads, and computers identified in the affidavit and all such information in such devices. Okay. That's a standard thing, by the way. And Eastman raises this dipshit argument about like, they didn't even know that he had a cell phone. They don't have to. That's the whole point of a search warrant. We can say any electronic device that might have evidence of an instrumentality of a crime. Okay. Then it says, after seizing the devices, law enforcement intends to transport the devices to Washington, D.C. or to the DOJ OIG Forensic Laboratory in Northern Virginia. And this is why I, I raised the point about resources. The investigative team will not review the contents of the devices until further order of a court of competent jurisdiction. Okay. Why does it say that? That's the taint team, right? That is saying, yeah, we're seizing this from a lawyer. We agree, uh, despite the fact that he's a horrible scumbag, that he has real clients and has actually rendered legal advice other than how to commit crimes uh, <laughs> and that that might be present on his phone. Yeah. So they put that in there because of his dumb Fourth Amendment arguments. Yes, exactly right. They anticipated. And again, uh, we <laughs> we have some precedent with this in, you know, raiding the house of Michael Cohen, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Rudy Giuliani. It's like, yep. we got your shit. We're going to look over it. We'll have a, a third party special master taint team, filter team look at it, and they won't hand anything that's privileged over to the Department of Justice. You're good to go. Yep. If a forensic, continuing, if a forensic extraction or manual screen capture of the contents of the devices occurs during the execution of the search warrants, that did not appear to occur here, the contents will not be reviewed by the investigative team until further order of a court of, cure, of competent jurisdiction. So that tells you exactly what the folks had in mind when they issued uh when they went to the magistrate judge and the magistrate and convinced the magistrate judge that probable cause existed uh for the evidence of a crime to issue the subpoena right that's laura fashing the u.s magistrate judge who signed off on this in albuquerque new mexico so uh that that is due process of law by by the way mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and so yeah go ahead well, there's other things, too, that DOJ can get before they execute these search warrants under, what is it, Rule 2703, where they can get that information from people's phone carriers without informing the person that they're getting it and that that is within also the law and doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment. Um, and so I don't know what led them to have the evidence that there is evidence in the phone. But as Andy McCabe said on CNN a minute ago, you can't get this warrant unless you can prove that yep. there that there is evidence on that device that you need to complete your investigation that you can't get elsewhere. Right. Yep. You have to prove probable cause that that exists. You are exactly correct. There is no way that this investigation did not first go to the cell phone carriers. And so, yeah, there is corroborating evidence of which we do not yet have. Uh, that uh, that that provided the basis for the factual assertions in the affidavit that gave rise to 
uh, this magistrate judge signing off and saying, yep, you can you can go to a lawyer and take their cell phone. Right. That's a that's a that's a high bar. And uh, and 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 the government cleared that. And I don't think that the Office of the Inspector General can get these kinds of warrants. I mean, uh, from my understanding, OIG can do criminal investigations, but they aren't technically federal criminal investigations. Um, And so I don't know if they ran into evidence in their normal investigation, found this evidence existed, and then teamed up with the Department of Justice and said, we need to execute this search warrant. Can you get it signed off? Went to Merrick Garland. He said yes. Went back down to the judge. She signed off on it. They covered all their Fourth Amendment bases and Fifth Amendment bases and then sent it um, and then then executed it. I'm not sure how this went, but it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating. That's a really excellent point. The, The principal purpose of OIG investigations is meant to be while the person or persons are still there. Right. So that you can fix a problem that. Right. That's. That's the whole idea of an inspector general is to say, oh, yeah, we have we have somebody in the department that's a problem right now. And here's the evidence. But because it is a subsidiary of the Department of Justice, they they decided to provide for information sharing. So, again, uh, Appendix 3, Section 80 says that. Uh, The inspector general shall be under the authority, direction and control of the attorney general with respects to audits or investigations or the issuance of subpoenas which require access to sensitive information concerning a ongoing criminal or civil investigations or proceedings b undercover operations c the identity of confidential sources including protected witnesses d intelligence or counterintelligence matters or e other matters the disclosure of which would constitute a serious threat to national security so yeah as you are rooting out these kinds of invest these kinds of people this kind of evidence during your investigations we recognize that that might overlap with criminal investigations and we're going to allow you to do that. We're not going to you know, provide some kind of convoluted pipeline that would allow a white collar defendant to, you know, a, a, a potential escape hatch. Um, but you will be under the direct supervision and control of the attorney general. So, again, you can trace this back a direct line to Merrick Garland himself. Yeah, 100 percent. Well, we will see what happens with this and with the Clark stuff. And if Klukowski's involved, has anyone has anyone checked on Klukowski? <laughs> has he called his office? I'd be interested to know. Um, that's, like, that's like the end of uh, Trading Places again. Beaks, whatever happened? Yeah, to whatever guy? happened to be. Yeah, Klukowski's yeah. in a cage dressed as a gorilla. Yeah, headed you for heard the it Sudan. here first. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to take a real quick break. Then we're going to get back with comings and goings. Everybody stay with us. Are you struggling with our broken healthcare system in America? My name is Laura Packard, and my podcast, Care Talk, covers healthcare in America from a progressive perspective. Don't have health insurance? Don't understand the differences between insurance plans? Dealing with surprise medical bills, out of control prescription drug costs, or can't get the care you need? We'll get you answers. Do you think healthcare is a human right and we've got to do better in this country? If this describes you or a friend or family member, listen to Care Talk with Laura Packard, podcast weekly on Tuesdays. Our healthcare experts answer your questions every week, and they go in depth on healthcare topics such as access to abortion after Roe, how gun violence affects healthcare, fighting medical bills, and more. 
go to act.tv slash care talk or search for care talk with Laura Packard on your favorite podcast app to listen today. Everybody, welcome back. Next up, Adam Rappaport at the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington brings us a request for comings and goings. Uh, did you know, Andrew, that Ginny Thomas currently holds a position in this administration? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in May of 2020, uh, then President Trump appointed Ginny Thomas to a five year term on the Library of Congress Trust Fund Board. Uh, it really is a way of owning the libs, right? Uh, the, the Trust Fund Board oversees gifts to the library and determines the investment policy of the library's gift and trust funds, all, all of which, you know, being the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice makes you eminently qualified to do. So as as of the library's most recent financial report, the combined value of those trust funds, just take a wild swig at this one, is more than $200 million in this uh, charitable fund uh, that uh, of the board on which Ginny Thomas now sits. Oh, cool. So just put her in charge of $200 million worth of historical facts and documents. Cool. Uh, the trust fund board includes the Librarian of Congress, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Chair and Vice Chair of Congress's Joint Committee on the Library, eight members appointed by Congress, and two presidential appointees. Members are not paid, but can be reimbursed for expenses. How cool is that? And get to vote on where, you know, nine figures of funds goes, which has its own privileges. Mm -hmm. So, uh, crew, our, our friends uh, over at the... Um, uh, citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, says, <laughs> with some understatement, uh, that Thomas's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election make her unfit for any role in government, let alone one overseeing hundreds of millions of dollars in federal money. And we at Clean Up on Aisle 45 could not agree more. So, uh, AG, what's the mechanism to remove her, get her ass off the board? Well, federal law doesn't address the removal of trust fund board members or require that they can only be terminated for good cause. So since she's a presidential appointment, I would think President Biden has the power to just remove her. I'm not sure why he hasn't. I I think so, too. I think the only reason uh, not to do that is, you know, it being perceived as, uh, you know, political backlash to and. You know, oh, so you're going to wait until the Alito decision comes out on Dobbs he, and then yeah. it's going to seem less retaliatory? Uh, I think we should be in full on retaliation mode anyway. I think if, if Biden did a little overt retaliation, hmm, it's not like Mitch McConnell would be more obstructive than he is right now. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, would probably help him out with, uh, you know, some of the. Uh, wings of our party that are less than satisfied with him at the moment. So mm. as we reported in previous comings and going segment, Biden uh, removed 18 Trump supporters last year that Trump appointed to the boards of military academies, including Kellyanne Conway and Sean Spicer. And last month removed, quote, Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker from the Presidential Council on Sports, Fitness and Nutrition uh, by dropping one of those. Oh, God, we love these. Resign by 5 p.m. or you're fired letters. Yeah. And, the, and, and guess who Trump's other board appointee is? Because you get two. Yeah. <laughs> It's How another worse than, than Ginny Thomas. You, I don't know. I I, I put them both on the same level, but it's none other than Nazi CPAC stage designer Matt Schlapp. Oh God! He is also the chairman of the American Conservative Union, the ACU, which is actively running legal defense for select Trump aides against the One Six Committee. 
So Biden, if you're listening, please remove these sedition party leaders from the Library of Congress board. It will be tremendously thanked by our media. Yeah, that excellent request. And we know Biden is listening. So, uh, Joe, help us out here. Yep. Yep. I know you listen, Joe. So come on, man. Get rid of them <laughs> and do it. Do one of those by five or your fired letters. Cause yeah, we need, we need a Stuart Scott. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, well, uh, that's our show for, uh, for this week. Um, I, I, I just want to echo, uh, Allison, what, what you said earlier, which is, um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're hurting, um, to take care of your mental health first and foremost, like we get it. And if you are, looking for support you know you've got a community here you've got the communities at muller she wrote and opening arguments there's a reason we do the show together right we're all there uh and um and and seek us out um we're not hard to get a hold of and um and please uh take care of yourself yeah absolutely the leguminati is here for you Mm-hmm. Uh, as is uh, my my DMs on Twitter at Mueller. She wrote, "If you just want to scream into the void, I might not get back to y'all. I'm going to do my best, uh, but I I do read them and I do listen, and uh, it, it's a place, it's a safe space for you." Uh, all right, that is it. Thank you so much. I look forward to next week when maybe we discuss who else has been subpoenaed in <laughs> the uh, ongoing, widening, humongous investigation into the one six insurrection. Thank you very much. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew Torres. We'll see you next week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Harry Lichtman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. Plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts.